At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. If you would, please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. That's where we're going to find ourselves this morning, Daniel chapter 3. Let me begin this way. I'm really grateful to Pastor C.T. Eldridge. I leaned pretty heavy on uh, some of his ideas for this message this morning. He's our pastor at Royal Oak. I love the fact that we have a team and we really work with each other on so many of our messages and message series. And uh, it's such a gift to be part of Woodside and all that uh, God is doing through our campuses in this region. In 1936, the Blomenvoss Shipbuilding Company had just finished constructing their newest war vessel for Germany's Navy. This was a massive project that utilized the latest navigational technology and weapon systems at that time. So to celebrate, Germany's chancellor, of course, Adolf Hitler, made his way to the city of Hamburg to visit the shipyard and christen this new war machine. As you can imagine, hundreds of workers from the company gathered around the chancellor and the new ship, and there was pageantry and music and speeches. And during the celebration, a photo was snapped, it's now become famous, of the crowd of workers. And you'll notice in the picture that there are hundreds of German shipyard workers, and they're all saluting Hitler with the famous Sieg Heil, which means Hail Victory. It was a way of communicating their reverence. It was a way of communicating their allegiance, their complete obedience to the German Fuhrer. And it was a way to glorify the nation. This was more than a greeting. It was more than a military signal. in, In many ways, it was an act of worship. All of them are saluting their loyalty except for one single man. Do you see him? I'll help you in this next picture. This one worker didn't salute. He didn't lift his hand. He stood there with his arms folded in defiance. The man's name was August Landmesser. August had previously been a member of Hitler's Nazi party, but something happened to August, something that has happened to many men throughout the ages that changes their minds, and that is he fell in love. And the woman's name was Irma Eckler, and Irma was Jewish. And by the time of the early 1930s, Hitler had already implemented his hateful and violent policies towards homosexuals and gypsies and Jews. So when Landmesser applied for a marriage license to this Jewish woman, he was kicked out of the Nazi party, removed from his governmental post, and transferred to Blomenvoss, Blomenvoss, uh, the factory shipyard. And then one day, Hitler shows up. 
And he's surrounded by fanatical citizens, surrounded by this outpouring of loyalty and godlike worship. And what does Landmesser do? What would you do? Would you fall in line and show him the respect and admiration that everybody else was? Or would you defy the norm, stay silent, and choose not to honor this incredibly powerful, but by this time, this very well-known hate-filled person? When we open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, we find three men in a situation not all that different from August Landmesser. We were introduced to these three characters back in Daniel chapter 1. If you remember, their names were Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, all names that were meant to remind them of their cultural and spiritual lineage and identity, all names that reflected the goodness of God, the, the greatness of God, steeped in tradition within their faith. But the Babylonian king changes their names to the Babylonian names, the names that we've come to know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to reorient their minds around his agenda, around the Babylonian worldview, around a polytheistic worldview, a cultural perspective that had no space, no room, no place for the God of Israel. And along with changing their names, they are forced to receive a Babylonian education. They're forced to work in the Babylonian courts in some sort of governmental job advancing the empire's cause. And the three men go along with all of this. It's maybe one of the surprises of the story. Maybe it's something you haven't considered if you're familiar with this chapter of scripture. It's very famous. But they all seem to accept the name changes. The scripture doesn't say that they fight it. They graduate from Babylon University. The scripture doesn't say that they fight it. They serve the Babylonian government, and the scripture doesn't say that they fight that either. But now they're confronted with an unavoidable issue. The king of Babylon constructs an idol. Many believe it was a golden image of himself. I think that's a good conclusion. We don't know for sure. But he mandates that this idol, this image, must be worshipped. Now remember back in chapter 2, this is where that argument's really built from. The king had a dream of a giant statue. And Daniel says this in verse 32 of chapter 2, The head of the statue is made of pure gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And then Daniel, another one of these deported Israelites, interprets the dream and says the parts of the statue represent kingdoms and the golden head represented Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And so it's a strong possibility that he took that interpretation from the dream and said, okay, this is what Daniel had to say. I'm the head. I'm the golden top of this statue. Well, I'm going to make an image and the entire thing's going to be gold from head to toe. Maybe that's his interpretation, but I want everybody to know that this kingdom and this king, I'm the goat. This is the greatest of all time. So he's pompous, he's arrogant. He's building up this image to say he is the only king that ultimately matters. And you know the famous phrase, pride comes before a what? Fall. I guess not as many knew it as I thought. We'll be looking at that fall in a few weeks from now. At this point in the story, though, here's what the king orders. Look at verse 4. 
And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So we have the collision of two immovable objects. On the one hand, you have the command of King Nebuchadnezzar. Worship the golden image. Worship the idol built in my name or in the name of one of our gods. On the other hand, you have the law of God. Specifically, we should think of the first two commandments that were given to Moses for the people of Israel. Remember those two, you shall have no other gods before me. And number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. So you have the decree of an earthly king and you have the law of Israel's God. Which king will bend the wills of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It's like Landmesser. He had the pressure to swear loyalty to the German chancellor and he had love for his Jewish wife. So follow the crowd or compromise. Stand up for what's right and experience some degree of sacrifice or just give in and go along with what everybody else is doing. Now you've probably heard how the story goes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. They refused to worship this false god and so they're brought before the king and they're questioned over what at that time was a crime. And this is their response. Look down at verse 15. King Nebuchadnezzar says, Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, whenever any music plays, it sounds like. <laughs> whenever that happens, fall down and worship the image that I have made. If you're ready to do that, well and good. It'll go well for you. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And I just love verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words... There's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to talk about. You've called us to do something, and through our actions, we've already demonstrated we have zero willingness to do it. We're not going to do it. Our defiance speaks for itself. We have not, and we will not, worship this idol. So the arrogant king does exactly what you'd expect an arrogant king to do. He orders the furnace heated seven times the number of completeness or perfection, seven times hotter than whatever normal was at the time. And then he binds the three men, and he gets his most powerful soldiers, and those powerful, strong soldiers take him to the furnace. They throw the men in the furnace, and the furnace is so hot, and the fire is so uncontained that all of those soldiers die. And so they're thrown into the fire. But as the king is somehow able to look into the furnace, he sees the men walking around. And if it wasn't crazy enough that the men weren't screaming in pain or that they were walking around in the furnace now completely unbound, all the things that held them tightly when they were tossed in are now loosed and they're just walking around within the flame, 
Or it's not crazy enough to think about the fact that their clothes weren't on fire and none of the hair on their head or their eyebrows or anywhere on their body was singed in any way, shape, or form. The craziest part might just be that he sees a fourth person. An angelic divine figure, someone he describes as a son of the gods in verse 25, walking around with them. This is one of those moments in scripture, and I'm sure maybe many of you have imagined it, like I would have loved to have been in the room. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. I don't want to be a soldier. I probably wouldn't have wanted to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, certainly not getting tossed in, experiencing that or thinking about that threat or assuming that life was going to be lost. And I wouldn't want it to be aligned with King Nebuchadnezzar, but I would have liked to have seen how this whole thing would have shaken out. And if you have an issue, by the way, with this portion of scripture, and you're like, you know what, I, I, just, I just don't buy it. This just seems a little too supernatural to me. Let me remind you here in this room, or if you're watching online, that the Christian faith is full of the supernatural. And what that means ultimately is the very basis of our faith on which we stand is the principle and the idea and the historical, we would claim fact, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, was crucified, dead and buried, and walked out of a tomb three days after he had been buried. It's a resurrection truth, which is supernatural. So if you have a problem with the supernatural, you're going to have a problem with the Christian faith. And yet somehow I truly believe objectively in my heart that these things happened. And these scriptures are written in a particular style. It's historical narrative, real time, real place, real people. It's described as fact, and we believe it to be so. And so I wonder how long this whole thing went on as he's looking into that furnace. Was it like seconds? Was it minutes? Was it like 15 minutes? I mean, how long did it take him to like call all his other whatever royalty people and say, check this out. Look at what's happening in there. And it goes on long enough. Eventually, it's really kind of ironic until he says, well, I guess that didn't work as he's looking at the singed bodies of his own soldiers And a fourth guy walking around in the furnace, which we assume is what's called a Christophany, Jesus, before his incarnation. And he says, well, guys, why don't you come on out? Glory to God. Glory to the God of Israel. I mean, what else, I guess, is there to say? So they come out. And when they walk out, they don't even have the smell of smoke on their clothing. If you stand around a fire, I mean, this is how it is for me, at least in in our Michigan context. You sit down in your chair, and there's the campfire, and you always place yourself so you're not downwind from the smoke. But like within three seconds, it turns right into your face. And then you shift over here, and it shifts again. I mean, how many seconds does it take before that smoky smell is in your hair, your clothes, and it's just all over you? Like 15, 20 seconds? And then it's there, unless you wash it off, it's there forever, right? (laughs) Like, it's kind of there forever. Well, these guys go into an inferno that wiped out the king's strongest soldiers, and they come out smelling like they were just anointed with frankincense and myrrh. What is God saying to us in this chapter? What are we supposed to do about it? What is its relevance to you and to me? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time with today. Every culture and every person has something we worship. 
the now deceased novelist and writer, his name was David Foster Wallace. He was not a Christian. He was not traditionally religious. But just through observing humanity from his perspective, he admitted this. He said, in, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He was unbelieving. He was a self-identified person that was irreligious, but he still had to admit everybody worships. And this is both the warning and the opportunity of the word of God. It's ultimately asking a question, this story, what will you worship? Will you place yourself underneath the sovereign control, holy reign, truth of God's word, the life of his son, the death of his son, the hopeful resurrection of his son, placing yourself in faith underneath of that authority, or are you going to place yourself underneath of some other authority? And in most cases for human beings, if it's not the word of God, if it's not something else or someone else, it's themselves. Self-idolatry. So what are you going to worship? The choice now in the text, it's really as clear as day. Uh, And the consequences for these three, they couldn't have been more severe. But for us, the choice is not always as clear. And the consequences don't appear nearly as severe. Now, sure, there's some context where you might hear a call to worship and a call to worship a false god. But outside of the obvious, what does modern-day idolatry look like in our culture, in American culture, in Michigan culture? Well, what we have in abundance are the deceptively subtle idols that we'll call this morning the idols of the heart. And they are abundant, friends. When contemporary people hear the word idolatry, we get this image of primitive people bowing down before statues. And so we look in the word of God and in the book of Acts, we see a picture of how cities and cultures in the Greco-Roman world would identify a dominant deity, build a shrine to that deity and worship. And so, for example, in Ephesus, the great temple of Artemis was there, the Greek goddess of fertility and wealth. In Acts 17, the apostle Paul went to Athens and it was known for the Parthenon of the goddess Athena. But Paul said the city's public squares, basically every intersection of roads, they all were literally full of images. Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. Eris, the goddess of war. Hephaestus, the goddess of craftsmanship. And it's a longer paragraph, but I want to read for you the words of Pastor Tim Keller, who's now uh, passed. Now he's with the Lord. But he so beautifully and prophetically talks about this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. If you have not read it, it's worth a read. But this is what he says about our society. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each culture, ancient and modern, has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each culture has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. In our contemporary society, beauty, power, and money, and achievement have assumed mythic proportions. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. 
We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and gain more prestige. When most people think of idols, they have in mind literal statues, and yet traditional idol worship still occurs in many places of the word. Internal idol worship within the heart, it is universal. How much time, just one example, how much time is spent by young men and young women posing day in and day out in front of their phone cameras and mirrors so they can show off their gains, show off their progress, show off their beach body, show off their new bathing suit. I literally just read this morning that a school in North Carolina is taking the mirrors out of bathrooms because so many students are skipping class to take TikTok videos and post them on social media during school. Is there such a thing as self-idolatry? And is it an issue? Is there such a thing as social idolatry? I hope you understand these answers are obvious. A quick Google search, I don't know if it's accurate, probably is, 4.8 hours a day. is That's the average time a teen spends on social media every single day. 4.8 hours mindlessly scrolling through image after image after image after image, looking for an image that they can put into their heads and their hearts. That's 1,752 hours a year. That's 73 full days per year. And it's two and a half hours a day for adults. That's 912 hours, 38 days a year. And since COVID, if I'm just making an observation, one of the things that Woodside does is we spend a lot of time with other churches. And all churches have struggled with this thing called volunteerism. And since COVID, it's fascinating that the old adage was always come to, come to worship. And as we gather together as a spiritual family, there's a couple of things that we want to do. We want to come and worship God together. Hear from the word together, pray together, worship together, experience the ordinances together. But then we want to use our gifts for the benefit of one another. That we want to use the gifts that God's given specifically you to build up the body into maturity so that it's prepared, so that it's ready for mission, so that it's ready to do all that God accomplishes it to do. So we're ultimately there to build one another up as disciples of Jesus. And yet to serve one and worship one, which when you put it together, it's only about three and a half hours a week, 182 total hours, maybe just over seven days a year. Well, for the church, at least right now around the world, that's too much to ask. Maybe it's day trading. Maybe it's fan duel. Maybe it's real estate. Maybe it's a dating app. Maybe it's an addiction to pornography. Maybe it's an addiction to politics. Maybe it's your closet or your car or your kid's athletic career or your grandkid's academic career. You know, we're all going to have fun this afternoon, but there's going to be a lot of worship happening. <laughs> we can't reject the idols of our culture. This is my point. If we can't discern the idols of our culture. How can you reject something if you're blind to the issue, if you're unconsciously aware? And so we must take short accounts with our heart. We can't repent of our idol worship if we don't know the idols of our hearts. And sometimes it can be hard for us to see these idols because they're not always some 10-story statue in the middle of a town. They might be hidden 
And maybe the spirit has been prodding your heart, but you figured out how to ignore him or justify your behavior or more commonly normalize the behavior because everybody else. But God's word is so clear here. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not set up for yourself a graven image. What idols tempt your heart? What idols are asking for your allegiance, asking to give you, give up that prime real estate in your heart and your head so that you can think about them and fantasize about them and pursue them and prioritize them and love them and ultimately worship them? Is it is it money or sex or power or wealth or pleasure or influence or sports or possessions or comfort or status? Whatever it is, the Lord is calling you to loosen your grip on those things, lay it at the foot of Christ and say, I submit all of my life to you. I want you to be in the primary place. He's not saying in all of these things to destroy them completely unless he's calling you to do so. To get rid of them completely, many of them are joys and gifts, but their place, the residence in our heart, the time we spend consumed with them. A few other points here very quickly as we wrap up this morning. What is God saying to us in this chapter? Reject cultural idolatry. Secondly, refuse to compromise. Look at verse 16 once again. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They had a greater image in their minds than the image of this king. And since we are all standing on this side of history that looks back at the life of Jesus, we have a far superior image in our minds too. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible God. And the good news is that we don't have to make an image of God to know who God really is. The, the gospel is that God himself has provided for us an image of himself in the person of his son, Jesus. And so all the fake images we set up, all those idols that we create, they all pale in comparison to his beauty, power, and grace. Spurgeon said it this way, the great preacher, if you delight more in God's gifts than in God himself. You are practically setting up another God above him, and this you must never do. So we refuse to compromise. As I was studying this text this week, I was just reminded, I so desperately want for my own heart, my own family, our church family, I, I so desperately want us to delight in Jesus to recognize his beauty, to bask in his presence, to pour over his life, to meditate on his word. I want to think like him and pray like him and imitate him and lead like him and serve like him and love like him and speak like him and lay down every desire and love in my heart at his feet and say, I'll give up any of these for you. That's the posture he wants. I'll, I'll give it all up for you. Take it. Take whatever it is that's steering my heart away from you. I'll give it to you. It's more important than this social media account. It's more important than all of this stuff the world chases. I just want you. 
Where is your heart this morning with Jesus? What is God saying? Reject cultural idolatry, refuse to compromise, and trust in God's deliverance. You know, rejecting the popular idols of the day, it has a cost. People will respond, but whether or not he saves us, be it known to you, they said, we will not worship your golden image. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the text, they don't fight in this conflict. They don't flee. They don't fawn or flatter. They don't freeze. They were filled with humble resolve. They were filled with the idea that whatever happens, I will not cheat on God. And God rescued them. When Jesus Christ faced his great trial at Calvary, he didn't fight, he didn't flee, he didn't fawn or flatter, he didn't freeze. He was filled with humble resolve and he had the mindset, whatever happens, I will not cheat on God. And the father did not rescue him. He could have rescued himself, but because he didn't, he rescues every single person who bows their heart to him. And that is the opportunity you have today. Because Jesus died, you and I are forgiven for every idolatrous act through faith. And the one who took our place on the cross that we deserved. Because Jesus now lives, you and I can walk through every persecution, every suffering, knowing that on the other side of obedience is life to the fullest, whether here on earth or in heaven with him. And Jesus, let me close with this thought. He might not walk next to you in the fire as he did with these three, but he does something even better. Through his spirit, he is present in you through the fire. It's amazing to think about that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, he's given you the Holy Spirit and he says, whatever fire you walk through, whatever furnace is in front of you, maybe you're not in one now, but certainly there's one to come. In that moment, he's not simply standing next to us. He is literally through his spirit indwelling us, filling us with power, filling us with his words, his courage, his love, his peace, his joy, his patience. And so in that moment, we can look at that and say, Jesus, thank you. You are with me. Even now, you are with me. What do you need to do today? Do you need to confess the idols of your heart? Lay them down at the feet of Christ. As we respond in singing, we're going to have some worship here at the end. I hope you stick around for it. And maybe you do need to come and you need to come down here and bow a knee and have the courage right here at the front on these steps to say, Jesus, I'm laying this down. I'm giving this to you. I'm giving it over to you. I'm giving you my life. And so maybe perhaps for you, it's that first step of faith. Maybe for you, it's, it's a moment where you feel like you're walking through a fire and you're just crying out to him to rescue you. Come and plead with him. Pray with him. Ask him for deliverance. Don't sit silent. Don't bury it and say, God knows. Ask him what you want. And trust that he'll respond and he will be with you through it. So Father, I pray as we respond in worship, 
that if there be brothers and sisters in this room, men and women who need to come and say, Father, rescue me through this trial, that they would come and receive your hope and pray with you and meet you here. And if they need to come and say, Father, I'm confessing this idol. It's been in my life. Take it from me. I submit it to Jesus. Father, give them the strength to come and do the same. And even if it means for some here today, giving their life to Jesus and saying, I have been my own idol for far too long. I now receive you as Lord, you as King. Forgive me of my idolatry and let me have new life in you. Father, speak to your people. Let your spirit move in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.